0: Today on Maine Calling, air travel today. Flying isn't what it used to be. Flights are packed, airlines must deal with more and more unruly passengers. And now some Boeing 737 MAX aircraft are grounded after a frightening in-flight incident. On the positive front, flight cancellations are way down and air travel apps make it easier to stay on top of flight changes and track your bags. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Main Calling, we will discuss the state of aviation, from the shortage of air traffic controllers to Boeing safety concerns, from ways that artificial intelligence is changing the industry to practical tips for travelers. Are you one of the 4.7 billion people who will fly this year? Main Calling is just ahead.
1: Maine Calling on Demand is made possible by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. And by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at learn.
0: I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. Commercial air travel has long been one of the safest ways to travel. But what about recent incidents in the headlines? And what about aviation overall? Is the system ready for this massive post-pandemic surge of travelers? My guests today are James Fallows. He's a former public media commentator, a pilot, and author of several books. The most recent, written with his wife Deborah, is Our Town's A 100,000-Mile Journey into the heart of America. His writing on aviation issues, as well as current events, can be found on Substack at Breaking the News. Also with us, John Zimmerman. He's an aviation expert, editor-in-chief of airfaxjournal.com, and is an active pilot. We invite you to join the conversation. Have you seen air travel change over the years? Do you feel safe when you fly? Send an email to talk at org. post a comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, John, I'm going to start with you. There have been several safety incidents having to do with commercial aviation in the news recently. And of course, the most sort of eye-opening scary was the Alaska Airlines flight in which um, Uh, Something, I I guess, that's referred to as a plug, but looks like a door uh, came off in flight after the uh, flight took off. No one was killed. A miracle. But tell us, with that incident, when you see that incident in the headline, when you see stories in the news about, you know, a a tire blowing on a a jet, what do you think? Do you think... That's scary? Do you think that's symptomatic of a broader problem? Give us your perspective.
2: Well, it's certainly scary if you're one of the people on that Boeing. So in no way would I minimize that. That's, a, that's not a pleasant experience at all. To your second question, is it symptomatic of a broader problem? Uh, in some ways, yes, but in most ways I would say no. Aviation travel in the US airline context, at least, is a modern miracle, I think. it. There has not been a, a serious fatal US airline crash in 15 years, which is absolutely staggering given the millions of people that fly every year. Uh, so in that sense, it's the one of the most incredible inventions of of humanity that people 300 people will get on an airplane today, an aluminum tube, and they'll go four miles up in the air and they'll fly 500 miles an hour. And there's a statistically 0% chance they're gonna die. So well, in that yeah. sense, the aviation system is incredible. Uh, and, and in the sense of the uh, Boeing incident, in some ways the system worked because nobody got killed. Now, it was a, a tremendous failure. I don't mean to suggest it was a good thing at all and Boeing's got some work to do. But in some sense, the training of the pilots, the training of the air traffic controllers, even the some of the fail-safe design of the airplane allowed that airplane to return and land safely with no serious injuries. So I hesitate to say that's the system working because that should never have happened, but uh, that's the way aviation works. It's belt and suspenders and duct tape, and uh, the system has worked tremendously well over the last decade.
0: John, I want you to put that number that you just gave us in context. You said no uh, commercial airliner crash in 15 years in the United States. How many flights have there been in 15 years in the United States?
2: Oh, gosh, hundreds of millions of people have have, have flown. I mean, the the... It's an imperfect comparison, but uh, I think it's a a great example. You know, 40,000 people roughly die on roads in America every year, and that never makes the news. We take it for granted. We don't think twice about jumping in the car to drive to the grocery store or pick up our kids from school. Uh, We don't consider that a risky activity. But 40,000 people a year die in crashes. Many more times that are involved in serious crashes and don't die. And so the fact that last year, no one died in a major US airline crash, uh, in a sense, that's why these things make the news. Nobody writes a front page story that says airplane lands safely with 300 passengers. So in some sense, we're sort of dragging around the statistical noise here looking for things that happen. And again, if it happens to you, it's a problem. And I think Boeing in particular has work to do. Uh, And so I I don't mean to say that everything is perfect, but... The numbers speak for themselves, which is we have created an incredibly safe public air transportation system, uh, and we sort of take it for granted.
0: Jim Fallows.
3: So just uh, to reinforce what John is is saying, for some numerical comparisons. Every day after the pandemic, roughly 3 million people uh, get on an airplane someplace in the United States. There are about 45,000 U.S. commercial airline flights every day. That means there are about 1 billion passenger journeys per day in the U.S. airline system, which means in the time since the last um, serious crash, the Colgan crash in Buffalo, the last 15 years, there have been a total of more than 10 billion passenger journeys. In the U.S., and a total of two people, you know, one, two have died in airline related incidents uh, during that time. So, c- compared to any other way you can spend an hour of your life being on an airliner in the U.S., is the safest thing you can do, just as context before we get to the possible problems.
0: Mm, okay. And, and Jim, I think that's I mean, just the fact that 45,000 flights a day, it's a mind boggling number of flights a day. Um, um, I'm wondering though, there are many people who have anxiety about flying and something I've often thought, it's sort of like being afraid of a shark attack, you know, not going to the beach because, and now in Maine, we've had one deadly shark attack in Maine history. Um, but there is, there is, Jim, something very human about not being in control. It is, as John said, being in a metal tube up in the sky.
3: Sure. And there's no discounting or denying the primal fear of being several miles up in the sky. And there are a couple of horrific, um, you know, aviation related uh, possibilities that are the stuff of nightmares for anybody, including pilots. One would be is if you, you're in a plane knowing that it's headed down or there's nothing to do about that, or a plane that it is on fire or some of these other things which make would give anybody, even you know an astronaut or Sully or whoever would give that person nightmares. So it's balancing something that is still atavistic and undeniable about human sense of where they should be, you know, touching the ground versus being in the sky versus the reality you're not going to get bit by a shark and you're even much you're a million times less likely to be to be killed in an airliner but still it is frightening for many people
0: all right well john let's go back to talk very briefly and there's so many things i want to talk about but very briefly about boeing how big of a problem does boeing have i mean this is not the first these this is the first incident in the united states but it is not the first incident
2: yeah, this is another case where two things can be true at once. At, at the same time, Boeing makes very safe airplanes and the overall Boeing accident uh, record is incredibly small. So uh, there's there's not a, a critical issue here that Boeing airplanes are falling out of the sky. What people are reacting to though is very true, which is there is a perception that quality and engineering excellence has faded at Boeing over time. And I think that's probably correct. This is an example, and they're still digging into the details of exactly how this door plug uh, was not installed properly. Was it actually at the Boeing factory? Was it at a second party that was doing some upgrades to it? Uh, but the end of the day, it's a quality control issue, just like a Ford truck coming off the line needs to be delivered defect-free. It's more important than ever with an airplane, and I think there's a sense in the industry that Boeing really has over the last decade, in particular. Focus maybe more on uh, squeezing another nickel out, being efficient, less on engineering excellence, and, and and it shows in the in the aircraft they're making. They really haven't delivered a new airplane in quite a long time. They don't have current plans to deliver a really new clean sheet airplane for many many years. The if the if the trajectory of Boeing through the 60s, 70s, and 80s was new products pushing the envelope, delivering larger airplanes, faster airplanes really leveled out in the 90s and the last 20, 25 years has been about making more efficient airplanes, making airplanes that airlines wanted that could be working with common type ratings so that pilots had to do less training. So it's been more of an efficiency story than a pushing the envelope in terms of engineering. And I think that's come home to roost to a certain extent here where you have uh, not for the first time some concerns about Boeing quality control here that's damaged the reputation and has just got the spotlight on them. Uh, you know, they were just barely recovering from the 737 MAX uh, issues of a few years ago. And I think this is just going to put the FAA and overall government, uh, it's going to put the spotlight on them and it's going to be a tough couple years for
0: them. Yeah, and you, you can know, John, um, if you are booking a flight, what kind of aircraft you're going to be on, can't you? Um, if people don't want to fly a 737 MAX, they can avoid it.
2: You can, although I would suggest that's not worth your effort. Uh, Again, the record is still incredibly good. Uh, Boeing makes great airplanes. All No airplane's perfect. Uh, Airbus has had their share of challenges. Boeing's maybe had more and more high profile lately. But I would not be changing my travel plans based on on the airplane. Again, statistically, your drive to the airport is much more risky than any airplane you're going to fly on on a major US airline. So I wouldn't spend any of your precious time chasing airplane models.
0: Jim, I want to ask you about something else that seems to be um, uh, very obvious to anyone who's traveled by air in the last couple of years. Every flight is full. Almost every flight you're being asked, they're asking for volunteers to not be on that flight, uh, making you check bags that you want to carry on. How is this possible?
3: So I think we're seeing uh, John mentioned the way that that Boeing has emphasized more efficient airplanes. I think we see in the evolution of air travel essentially from the over the last 50 years, from the 1970s till now, the pluses and the minuses of a ruthless efficiency drive. As it happened, I was part of the Jimmy Carter administration back at the dawn of time in the late 1970s when there was deregulation pushed on all sorts of fronts. Um, Interstate truck travel was deregulated. Home brewing was deregulated, which gave us the modern craft brew uh, miracle, but also airlines were deregulated. Before that, the federal government, the Civil Aeronautics Board had to approve every flight to every destination and every route. And the the result was something that was semi-luxurious, but also very uh, inefficient. There were uh, empty seats. The the average price of airfare was much higher in real dollars than, than it is today. And since deregulation in the late 1970s, you've seen essentially every bit of waste, quote unquote, boiled out of the system. And that means uh, that that can also mean slack. There are that all the algorithms are optimized to make sure every single purse, every single seat is filled and you find the clearing price that will ensure that. There are uh, no spare crews hanging around. There are no spare aircraft hanging around. And so when something goes wrong, the ripple effects um, go through the whole system because the redundancy has been boiled away, as I say. So that's, I think, why I can't remember the last time I saw a vacant seat in the airline. It's efficient in terms of fuel, in terms of airplane utilization, in terms of being able to reduce um, the lowest price fares, but it has all the effects we also know in terms of convenience and resiliency.
0: John, Jim just used the word algorithm, which makes me think of artificial intelligence. And I'm wondering what AI has meant and will ma- mean in the future for the aviation industry.
2: It'll be throughout aviation. Like, like most industries right now, lots of public companies are rushing to stuff AI in their annual reports and their and their earnings calls uh, so that they look like they're with the trend. But the reality is AI will sort of seep out, I think, through many things. So Jim mentioned efficiencies. Airline scheduling, everything from the airplanes to the crews is incredibly complicated. And that uses very sophisticated algorithms to make that all come out. Uh, That is certainly being done partially by AI now, or at least tuned up by that, and will be Uh, more tuned up in the future. Weather forecasting is a huge issue for pilots. Weather is a critical challenge no matter what airplane you're flying and weather forecasting really has improved dramatically. Another one of these unsung uh, heroes is the weather forecasters every day who put out increasingly accurate forecasts that these days the five-day forecast is more accurate than the two-day forecast was 20 years ago. And a lot of that's being done by uh, algorithms, AI, much smarter uh, sensors and forecasting. Uh, There's also things in the cockpit. Certainly uh, the latest generation of autopilots that we fly with have in a sense AI. Uh, We could debate exactly where the line is between simply smart and AI, but I think you'll see more and more of that where uh, some smart flight control systems can actually be trained to behave more like a pilot instead of just following a prescriptive code. So I think you'll see it, but it's not going to be a big bang moment. It's not like AI is going to get flipped on in aviation. It's just going to kind of seep out through all the different parts of it over time.
0: All right, Jim, you know, we're having this conversation in Maine. Uh, I know that you fly a small small, um, plane yourself and you like small airports. And I'm wondering, I know that there was an era there where Uh, A lot of small airports were in peril, Um, airports that serve um, smaller cities, including those in Maine. What can you bring us up to date? What can you tell us about the state of those airports that serve places like Presque Isle and Bar Harbor and, and the smaller towns throughout the country?
3: So I think, as John was mentioning earlier, uh, that contradictory things can simultaneously be true about aviation and about life in general. And I think that I would apply that to the situation of small airports on the United States. On the one hand, if you read any piloting magazine or listen to presentations by pilots, lobbyists, groups, you'll hear about this or that airport that has been closed and the encroachment of uh, subdivisions or whatever. In my home area of inland Southern California, there were a number of small airports that have been either closed you know, during my, my lifetime or are under constant threat of, um, of real estate development. On the other hand, compared to any other part of the world, the United States is practically paved with small airports. I think there's something like 5,000 places around the country where a small um, uh, fixed-wing aircraft can can land, of course, many more for for helicopters. And this is the result of several waves of development uh, in the U.S. in essentially the first half of the the 20th century, where for military reasons and economic development reasons, there were uh, small airports became the means of connection for rural areas. So I think it is worth defending the ones that are still there because there is mainly real estate pressure uh, all over the, the, the country, but there are still a lot of them. And I've flown to a whole lot of them in, uh, in Maine, from ones with gigantic runways <laughs> like that in Bangor to um, the, the northeasternmost airport in the United States, which is um, uh, Eastport, Maine, where I've uh, gone many times, except for about a year ago when the runway was closed for almost a year for repaving. But it was it's now open again. I was there a couple of months ago.
0: Oh, well, and if it was open for repaving, that's saying something because some don't have pavement, correct?
3: There are. John is a more accomplished and certified pilot than I am. So he probably is more daring about landing on grass runways. The most um, sort of chastening experience I've had in 25 years of flying was on a grass runway in Vermont after a rain with trees at the end of the runway. So ever since then, I have avoided, I've looked for paved runways only. And so, so they're the one on Eastport is very nicely paved.
0: Well, we do have to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take your questions. And we're also going to hear from Paul Bradbury, who's the director of the Portland Jetport. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. We're discussing commercial aviation. My guests are both pilots. John Zimmerman is an aviation expert and editor-in-chief of Airfax. And James Fallows is an acclaimed journalist and his writing on aviation issues, as well as current effects, can be found on Substack at Breaking the News. Share your comments and questions. Send an email. A brief email, please, to talk at mainpublic.org. Comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. On the line with us now is Paul Bradbury, director of the Portland International Jetport. Paul, thanks so much for giving us a call.
1: Thank you, and good morning.
0: Tell us the numbers. How uh, many passengers did the Jetport have last year? Um, what, has been the po- what has the post-pandemic surge looked like?
1: Yeah, it's really been wonderful, and it speaks volumes to how strong the Maine market and Maine is as a destination. But pleased to note that we're up uh, you know, 1.4% over 2019, which was our prior all-time record. So we hit 1.109 million boardings. So unbelievable. Uh, to see that and, and actually June, July, August, September and October were all all time record months. So so very good.
0: Paul, for folks who don't fly out of the jet port very often, where are their nonstops to from the Portland jet port?
1: Oh, thankfully, they, they vary, but we have nonstops to every major, uh, you know, market on the eastern seaboard. Uh, so thankfully, I mean, if you need to go to any of the New York metro markets, you know, New York, LaGuardia, JFK, uh, Atlanta, Chicago, uh, thankfully, we all have all of them in multiple flights a day.
0: Okay. And, and what about this coming year? Any, any that are being added that you want to tell us about?
1: Sure. The, uh, you know, those longer ones, the, uh, the Denver-Dallas, those long stop, those longer uh, head trips are always popular in the summer. And there is this affinity with Denver that, uh, that is always amazing to me. I think it's mountains to the ocean, uh, but in ski and sail in the summer. So those are the longer non-stops. But I should also mention it was wonderful to welcome Breeze Airways in May of this year. So with, with all of their service, which is just exceptional.
0: Tell us about um, what you see as the future of the Portland Jetport. It seems that as though in the 30 years I've lived in Maine that the Jetport has just expanded and expanded and expanded. Is more expansion uh, on the horizon?
1: So we, we immediately need some uh, some corrections for parking, for, for additional parking. And, and that's an interesting one. What we're seeing is a... Uh... It's, it's more than 10% now, but an increased dwell in our parking facilities, and we expect the explanation for that is additional with people able to work remotely. We, we believe they're able to, uh, you know, whether it's business or leisure, they're able to stay at their destination longer, which is, which is interesting but also challenging as we hit uh, new growth. So, so that is the, the immediate, and uh, this summer we'll be doing a large taxiway alpha rehabilitation reconstruction project, which is our parallel taxiway to the primary runway. So, uh, you know, some say, and I, and I think there was just a comment, you know, on repaving of, of runways, but yeah, sometimes airports are construction sites where planes land because there's always investment needed.
0: Well, Paul, I we'll have you on the line. Jim Palos has a question for you. Go ahead, Jim.
3: Yes, Paul, thanks very much. Uh, John Zimmerman and I were both stressing how safe overall um, commercial aviation is now. It's been years and years um, with no, no accidents. But as you know, there's been a lot of press coverage in the last six months about these close call episodes, mainly on the ground, mainly involving apparent stress on air traffic control staffing levels. What's the sense of the air traffic control staffing in Portland where I know that's not in your direct line of command there, but what do you observe about air traffic control there?
1: So thankfully, a lot like with our market has been so popular for people coming uh, throughout the year, we're also popular amongst air traffic controllers. So we are, we are one of those air traffic control markets that actually is fully staffed. And I know some of our major metros are having challenges with that in our major centers, but not here in Portland, thankfully. We, we, have, a, we have a full staff.
0: Paul, we're having this conversation while it's snowing outside. I take it the jetport is open right now, correct?
1: Yes, yes, we're open. And the uh, you know, it hasn't been a lot of snow this year, so the snow team has been anxious to to get out and uh, and, and use their equipment.
0: Well, and I also know that historically, the jetport staff has been very proud of the fact that you stay open more than any other airport in this kind of climate, in fact, more often than Logan. Is that is that still the case?
1: Well, thankfully, you know, our, even though we're very busy for a small airport, Uh, Our operations are less than Logan's, so so we have more time, you know, thankfully, on the runway. You know, our team's exceptional. They're very experienced, and uh, we're fortunate to have a full uh, snow removal team. That's been a challenge in the past few years, getting operators for our snow removal equipment, as you've probably heard even with public works departments across the state. But we have a full team that's, that's out there, and thankfully we just have a bit more time that we can get on the runways to keep it clean and perfect for our airline partners.
0: Well, Paul, thanks so much for calling in. That's Paul Bradbury, who is director of the Portland Jetport.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I will go to some audience questions now. We have an email coming in from Scott. Scott asks, is there anything anybody is doing to reduce the amount of air travel due to global warming? John, I'll throw that one to you first.
2: There's definitely a lot of talk about that. I mean, I think most people during the pandemic got to know Zoom and Google Meet and Microsoft Teams and all those. And there's I've seen varying estimates, but there's some sense that uh, a fair amount of business travel went away with the pandemic and hasn't come back, partially due to concerns about climate change. Uh, What I've seen that's most compelling, there is a lot of company intra-company meetings where maybe a, a group would fly out from the home office to another one for a couple of days. Those have changed to online meetings, um, and less air travel. So I think you're seeing some of that, but that's been offset post-pandemic by this surge in leisure travel, which maybe is starting to peter out a little bit, uh, that revenge travel, if you want to call it, uh, maybe is has peaked. But people like to get together in person. So I, I don't see long-term changes to the way people travel. Now, obviously, the aviation industry is talking about New ideas, whether it's sustainable aviation fuel, uh, which is production is growing, uh, or there's talk longer term about hydrogen or other uh, power plant options that are cleaner. So there's movement there, but I think there's a fundamental human desire to connect and connect in person. And I think we learned a lot of us, we learned how important that was during the pandemic. So I wouldn't Foresee the airline business going away. Uh, Their technology will change, certainly, as it did from piston engines in the 40s and 50s to jet engines to much cleaner jet engines today. Uh, Probably doesn't go recognized by a lot of passengers, but the typical engine you're flying on is somewhere about 90% cleaner in terms of emissions than it was in the 70s and 80s. So there's a history of progress there. I I suspect that will continue, but that's going to be probably the best answer because. If you're going to go uh, to South America or Asia or Europe or just to California, there's really no better, faster, safer way than in an airline.
0: Jim Fallows.
3: And again, just a couple of numbers to put this in perspective. Um, I agree very much with John that the drive within the industry is to make itself cleaner, more sustainable, less polluting, et cetera. Um, it's worth recognizing that that the atmosphere by definition is global. And the global aviation industry continues to grow at a very fast pace. For a very long time, North America was the lion's share of the commercial aviation market. Now, Europe as a whole has more air commercial air traffic than North America does, and Asia Pacific has almost as much and is growing more rapidly. So, the United North America represents now uh, less than than about uh, about just less than 30 percent of the global traffic market. Europe is more than 30 percent, and Asia is catching up with that. So I think the pressures from the rest of the world are increasing the volume of commercial air travel.
0: John, I'm wondering if we can sort of take a tack to the personal a little bit here. Um, Flying is not what it used to be. In fact, uh, it seems as though that industry is perpetually changing and and give me some tips if someone hasn't flown in a while but is thinking of maybe taking a trip what might they do differently than last time to make it a more pleasurable experience
2: i would say in general give yourself some flexibility so the the worst travel experiences most people have is when you're trying to jam too much into one trip so if you're trying to make a 32-minute connection at chicago o'hare Uh, and the weather's bad, and it's Friday night, you're really stacking the deck against you. So some tips I've used before, fly early in the morning, the first flight of the day. I think there's some pretty good statistical evidence that earlier flights are canceled less often. You don't run into things like crews timing out. There are work limits for how many hours pilots can fly. And so if it's an 11 o'clock flight, you might be bumping up against that. Uh, usually, airlines kind of reset overnight, so to speak, They're a lot, and not always, but in many cases, an airplane will park at 11 o'clock at night and will have a flight at 6 a.m. So, those morning flights typically work better. Uh, there are certain airports to avoid, everyone has their favorites and their least favorites. Uh, I certainly try to avoid uh, JFK unless I absolutely have to go through there for an international flight. Uh, you can hear different advice on you know time of which days are better and oh never travel on mondays always travel on mondays i've never really found much compelling there um so i would say in general uh, the fewer variables the better the fewer connections uh, the fewer different airlines uh, if you can if you can help yourself out that way do it the only other thing i'd tell you is approach it with a mindset of patience. If you expect everything to go flawlessly, and if you expect to love every person you interact with throughout the entire experience, you will be disappointed. So if you can approach it with just an attitude of patience and we're gonna enjoy the adventure, uh, I think it works better. I I find, honestly, the airport experience is worse than the airplane experience. Once you're sitting in the seat, it's not that bad. A lot of the hassle is security lines, baggage claim, things like that. So give yourself some time at the airport if you're unsure.
0: Okay, Jim, what would you add to that?
2: So, those are all bits of
3: sound sound advice. I'll say something about connections. One of the differences between pre-deregulation air travel before the 1970s and now is there were many more point-to-point nonstop flights. You can go from, say, Los Angeles to Philadelphia, which is more easily than you can right now. In their deregulation era, uh, airlines have found it much more efficient to have this hub-and-spoke model where you can, if you're going to go from Philadelphia to Los Angeles, you'll probably go through Denver or Atlanta or Dallas or someplace like that, which is more efficient economically, but has all the disruption potential for the passengers so i whenever i can i will drive out of my way to either airport so like to get a non-stop connection just because everything go wrong here's one other basic cat person versus dog person type um, oil <laughs> and water difference among humanity i Hate the way that modern airliners have become like third world buses, with people bringing their entire possessions along with them and trying to cram them. So I check bags <gasps> on my nonstop flights because I hate the idea of cr- of just the squalor of everybody fighting for the overhead bin space. But that's just me, Jim. Jim I agree with I'm you hundred percent. Oh,
0: both of you. Now Rick Steves has uh, been on me calling a couple times. And he's the opposite. He does not even let people on his tours check a bag, period. I
2: think, I th- I don't have data on this, but I think the airlines have gotten better, maybe with a blip during COVID when there were real staffing crisis. But I think in general, airlines have gotten better at check bags. Partially, maybe there's less volume because everybody likes to carry on. You can track it better. You can track it in the app. So uh, I'm with you. I, I I there's a cost to hauling your massive suitcase all the way through the airport to gate 57, and then hauling it on the airplane. And so uh, don't be afraid to check. Maybe I'll get maybe I'll get angry hate mail for that, but I believe in it.
3: Wow. So I, I'm
2: entirely with,
3: with John here, and just to to pile on here, it reduces your own anxiety about joining again this third world ferry boat wrong at at the But then you have the
0: anxiety of, am I going to get there without my stuff?
3: Yes. But, but it's, I would, I will trade that anxiety on a nonstop flight where it very rarely gets lost versus the anxiety of, oh, can I fight my way to get that last inch of overhead space? And I can watch other people fight that anxiety. I just wait my turn.
0: Oh my gosh, we could debate this forever. You also then have to wait for your bag. Um, um, My tip is I always, or I try to always remember to travel with wipes. I, I know how quickly they turn over planes. You know, we do, it is influenza season, it's COVID season, and uh, my kids, if they're listening to the program right now, are rolling their eyes because I'm the mom who's handing out the uh, wipes to everybody to wipe down the uh, chair rest in the um, tray in front of them. We'll go to Elizabeth calling from Freeport. Hi, Elizabeth. Go ahead.
1: Hi, Jen. Um, I love this conversation. I'm newly retired. And this is Biz, by the way, Jen, you know me. Oh, hi. And, um, hi. and um, we're traveling a lot more. And what really gets me is i just spent about three days trying to get to greece where we're doing a cruise and you see a price you like and then you click on that and then everything is an add-on everything and so
0: what you thought was a 650 flight all of a sudden is 800 dollars. when did this happen and, and why <laughs> one of the many things that people who haven't flown in a while and are flying now are finding jim um,
3: you're nodding. I'm nodding. This is part of the way in which um, the airline market has become like essentially every other market in the U.S. in the deregulatory era. Try booking a hotel room, try booking a rental car, try booking anything. And just, you know, you have the bazillion other fees. So it is more, it's more market-like in the good ways, that the base price is much lower in real terms than it was 20 years ago and in the bad ways uh, as your caller just described
0: biz have fun in greece and uh thanks for calling in speaking of um adding on cost john you've already said that you like to check your bag now i'm going to ask you do you buy the travel insurance that is being offered when you book your ticket
2: I do not. There, there's one where I have not drunk the Kool-Aid on that. I uh, I've read the fine print on that, maybe because I'm uh, particular. But the fine print's important on that, and the the scenarios where that will pay out are fairly specific and probably not as broad as you think. So if you think buying travel insurance just means, oh, they'll cover me if you know if I get sick with a cold, probably not. Uh, in most cases, if it really matters, you should buy a refundable ticket. I think is generally a better investment. It's going to be a little more money, but it's actually refundable. Uh, That's not always available. Sometimes that's expensive. But if that's really important to you, I would buy the refundable ticket over the insurance. If it's a a big package, you're doing a big vacation that's including hotel and ground transport and airline, in that case, it may make sense uh, where the insurance could pay off. But definitely read the details. Uh, You see that even more and more. Even concert tickets now, you can buy insurance. It probably won't pay out as often as you think, is my advice.
0: All right. And Jim, do you agree?
2: Yes.
3: I have. Um, I'm old enough to remember the days when airline travel was dangerous enough that they had inside the airports these little vending machines for for insurance for the flight. Uh, but I, I have, didn't buy it then. I haven't bought it since. I agree with John's uh, outlook here.
0: All right. Well, we are talking about aviation. We're talking about flying on Maine Calling. If you have a question, send us an email, talk at mainepublic.org. Find us on social media or give us a call 1-800-399-3566. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. Today on the program, commercial aviation. My guest, John Zimmerman, who's an aviation expert and editor-in-chief at airfacts.com airfaxjournal.com jim fallows an acclaimed journalist who writes about aviation issues and current events on his Substack, breaking the news join our conversation at 1-800-399-3566 send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or post to our facebook page or to instagram um before we go back to calls i want to talk about something that john you touched on Uh, excuse me jim you touched on a little bit ago when you were talking to paul bradbury at the portland airport and that is the air traffic control system like so many things in society today there is a shortage of air traffic controllers at the very same time that there are more flights than ever before john characterize how serious a problem this is
2: yeah there's a real strain there and I, i don't know that aviation safety is being impacted but the margins are getting thinner is how i would describe it uh, there's a understaffing at a lot of facilities, both tower and the in route air traffic control centers that really cover the airspace overlying the United States. And it's hard to make an air traffic controller. Nobody's born a controller. And so it takes time and training to spool up. And there's sort of a generational changeover in controllers right now that frankly, the FA hasn't done a great job of anticipating get and getting ahead of, uh, they've been behind on training. Uh, they. Claim lately they've caught up to that a little bit. So we'll, we'll see over the next couple of years if they catch up, but we need air traffic controllers. It's a, it's a critical job. They're a critical piece of the system. They deserve a lot of the credit for why aviation is safe. Uh, and so you're starting to see right now, a lot of controllers are working overtime a lot and that just adds to the strain in the system. So that's definitely gonna be an important part of the next uh, couple of years here is hopefully we can catch up on that.
0: I got an email from Chris. Curious what actually causes turbulence, how it's detected, how it can be avoided, and what's the worst case they've ever experienced, if they want to share. John?
2: Yeah, I I fly a lot of passengers, including kids in small airplanes. And so my speech on this is that air behaves like a fluid. So while you can't see it like a wave, it really behaves like waves in the ocean. So if you get on a boat in Bar Harbor and go out in the water and there's 20 knots of wind across the water, you're going to bump through the waves in the water. And it's really the same thing that's happening except when you're on delta flying to chicago you're going to be bumping through waves that are 150 miles an hour so there's nothing wrong with it it's totally normal it's just visualize yourself in a big boat in the sky bumping through waves there are lots of different causes that you can get into but in general uh in an airliner you're bumping through basically waves in the air there's nothing dangerous about it i assure you the pilots are not scared of it I'll give you one other tip. Sometimes people look out the window and they see the wing kind of moving up and down, flexing as you bump. That's good. That's not bad. That's the system working. Because otherwise it'd be stiff as a broomstick and it would just snap. So if you see that wing tip up there going up and down, rest assured that's totally normal and you're just bumping through some waves in the sky.
0: All right, here's a question from Carl at email. Besides the Owlshead Airport in Rockland where chargers for electric planes are going to be installed this spring, Are chargers going to be installed anywhere else? And if yes, where and when? Uh, Jim Fallows, I know that you're probably not um, so up to date that, you know, in every state (laughs) where electric chargers are going to be installed. But to a general trend, if this is happening at Owl's Head, is this also going to be happening at the uh, airports that you fly into around the country regularly? And um, are you looking forward to the day where you might be flying an electric plane?
3: So we're talking about chargers for electric planes, not for the cars people are driving in, right? So I think the the whole electric plane um, movement is, is important and also contained. Uh, a, a fundamental problem for electric-driven aviation is that batteries are so heavy. And so there's going to be, I think there are already a lot of companies, um, there's one in not That far away in in Burlington, Vermont, Uh, beta aviation, a number in California, which are essentially doing sort of uh, flying car type things for short haul urban uh, routes or for replacing helicopters or drone delivery, things like that. But it seems to me unlikely that the basic physics of electric uh, propulsion will allow much more serious um, electric aviation. John, what do you think?
2: I agree. I think you're going to see it as a replacement for some helicopter applications, but it's just not there to take 200 people on a thousand mile trip. We're going to need radical advances in battery technology. It's just, it's years off, unfortunately. That's why I think you'll see aviation pursue sustainable aviation fuel or hydrogen or other options.
0: We'll go to Hayden, who's calling from Lincolnville. Hi, Hayden. Go ahead.
2: Yes, uh, thank you very much. I just w- wondered
1: if your guests would speak to uh, de-icing, how that works. For I know that they spray it on the plane, but when you're going up, does it melt off? Do they
2: just figure it'll be dry up top? How is all that working, that process? Thank you.
0: A good question on a snowy day in Maine. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's like most things in aviation, highly choreographed, and they've done their research. So what you need to take off is you need a clean wing. A wing creates lift when it's clean and air can flow smoothly over the wing surface. So anytime you have rough ice or snow on the wing that prevents lift. So when they're de-icing an airplane on the ground, that's what they're doing. They're blasting off all the snow and ice. That's why it takes some time. They want to make sure they get it all. And it also has some anti-icing properties to the chemical that's on the wing. But there's very specific, it's called holdover times that you cannot sit there forever after you've been de-iced. So once the airplane's been de-iced, that's why you do it right before you go to the runway. There's a matter of minutes that you go to take off, and if, it, if that time limit goes up, you got to go back and get deiced again. Now, once you're in the air, once you're flying, airplanes have built-in deice systems. The wings are deiced, the engines. So that's really just pre-takeoff if it's been snowing.
3: Jim. And just to follow one point on what John was saying, which I agree with for airliners, yes, once they take off, you know, they are so powerful or moving so quickly, they don't um, ice up for a little plane like the one I have, a Cirrus SR22, a single engine four seat plane being inside a cloud when it's below freezing is the most dangerous thing you can do because uh, then the wings do ice up and and the plane will fall out of the sky. So for smaller aircraft, being inside a cloud is, is uh, a cold cloud is the most dangerous part of flight.
0: Hayden, thanks for your call. Uh, we'll go to Max, who's calling from Portland. Hi, Max, go ahead.
1: Oh, hi, thanks. Uh, I'm just curious to hear the panel's um, thoughts about the distance between seats, or I think it's called pitch. Because it seems to have gotten sort of punitively short lately. At least that's my experience. Or maybe it's just I'm getting larger. But just wanted to
2: hear their their thoughts on that.
0: John and Jim uh, Jim are both grinning. Max, uh, John, go ahead.
2: I think there's a little bit of both. The the a lot of uh, FAA rules assume the average American male is 170 pounds and. I don't know that the average American male is still 170 pounds. So there's definitely some of that uh, going on. But it, I think the larger piece is uh, it goes to Jim's point about efficiency. Airlines, the reason you can get that $49 Super Saver fare to Orlando is because of that efficiency. And if you can get five more seats in the airplane, uh, you can you know lower those costs and pack more people in. So it just goes to the efficiency part. And I think the other piece you've seen is multiple cabins. There used to be, you know, first class and coach. And now you've got comfort, comfort plus, premium economy, you know, business, super elite. And so there's just been this stratification of you you can pay for how much legroom you, went, you want. It's no longer just a lot or none. So I just think that's the modern airline business model.
0: Uh, an email from, oh, go ahead, Jim
3: a brief cat versus dog issue here too i am six foot two i never want the person in front of me to recline their seat i never recline mine we could have a whole show on that
0: (laughs) speaking of our debate our debate from earlier avery is weighing in with an email remember that checked bags limit last minute flexibility to change routes or flights keeping all your gear with you keeps you nimble so uh Avery, thank you for that. Uh, Go ahead, John.
2: And my only tip on that is when I check a bag, I always have a backpack or briefcase with me and I always keep a few essentials there. So my rule is I need to be able to live out of my backpack for a night in the airport, but everything that can wait a day gets checked. So there's kind of an in-between there you can use.
0: Uh, an email here from kevin can you tell me why the boarding process hasn't changed in so long why isn't there a more efficient way of boarding a plane i have thought the same thing shouldn't they board the last seat first um john you're grinning
2: yeah there's there's been some research on that actually where i think some scientists came up with what they thought was a you know 46 percent more efficient way to board (laughs) the airplane um, and I honestly don't know this. I, I would agree. It, d- it does seem like there's got to be a more efficient way to do it. This is part of the Southwest model with no assigned seats that they one of the reasons they do that is it's more efficient to load so they can have shorter turnarounds. But uh, I suspect that is just a, a holdover. I'd be surprised if, if there's not a better way. I'd support it.
0: One thing, Jim, I think is interesting as far as boarding planes is nowadays, if you um, if the plane is boarded, it may and will very often leave early.
3: So it's it's true. And I guess they must have some algorithm of, of uh, if they have if everybody who's supposed to be on the plane is on the plane, you know, then they will go. And pres- there must be some gray zone where if they're, depending on the class of ticket somebody has paid for, you know, there are for United, there was one magical year when I had United Global Services. I was living in China and flying United back and forth. And that they will hold a plane for you if you're making a connection and they'll have a car take you from gate to gate. If you're on a $49 ticket, they might say, okay, close enough. You know, you weren't here by boarding time. We're going to roll.
0: Mm. I want to, we just have a couple minutes left. And John, I know you wanted to return to talking about the smaller airports, which the Portland Jetport by Maine standards is a big airport, but by uh, international standards is a small airport. And then of course, the Bangor Airport, the Presque Isle Airport, and all the the even smaller airports in Maine, Um, tell us how you view them in terms of not just getting people from one place to another, but their sort of importance to society.
2: Yeah, they're a great resource that I think gets overlooked easily if you don't fly out of them. But Maine's a great example of a state that is is probably, I would assume, connected in many ways by these general aviation airports. Jim mentioned 5,000, I think, public-use airports in America, 14,000 more private ones. And that may not mean airline service, but that could mean air medical, so you can evacuate Maybe somebody's, uh, you know, hunting in the North woods and they need to be evacuated or law enforcement, uh, all kinds of other businesses, flight training that are supported by these small airports. So there's, there's great value in that. It's one of the keys to the American aviation system is all these thousands of airports we have all over the United States. They really are key assets for a local community. And if you have always driven by one in your neighborhood, uh, check it out. You might be surprised at some of the interesting things going on there. It's, it's a great asset, I think, for a small community.
0: All right, Jim, what would you like to add to that?
2: So I'll just add your
3: own Eastport, Maine, as an example here that it doesn't have any kind of airline service. But the fact that it does have a good runway that that even little jets can land at makes an enormous difference in medical service, in business possibilities, in, in tourism and all the rest. And again, for to keep the numbers in perspective, Um, there are, as John said, about 14,000 landing facilities, one kind or another, about 5,000 small airports, only about 900 have any kind of airline service at all. So all the rest, these connections for little farming towns, for uh, medical emergencies, for uh, visitors, whatever, are, are these small airports, and so we should keep them open.
0: Well, I really appreciate both of you joining us today. The voice you just heard is James Fallows, former public media commentator, author of several books. And his writing on aviation issues as well as current events can be found on Substack at, quote, Breaking the News. Also with us, John Zimmerman, editor-in-chief at airfaxjournal.com. Today's sound engineer was Jane Donahue. Main Calling is produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. You can find our past shows and sign up for our Main Calling weekly newsletter at maincalling.org. Repeating that, maincalling.org. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk about flooding in Maine, what to know about forecasting that, and flooding potential in the future. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.